All right, so let's get started. Oh, we started right at 220. Good of me. Okay, so um, oops, start with some housekeeping. Uh, the you know the papers are in. I haven't checked if everybody's paper is in. So I, I know um, if you know I know some people needed uh, some extensions, but if you haven't turned it in, please do as soon as possible. I'll try and have those graded by by about a week from today. Um, you know, I've started to take about another week. Okay. Uh, now, in terms of um, Friday's class, I realize on the syllabus it says Peter Brook, The Empty Space. What I'm asking you to read, and I, I made an announcement about this, is uh, The Rough Theater, so Chapter 3. It's a pretty easy read. Skim it through. We're going to be talking about... It's, it's also very... Um, very abstract, I think, compared to a lot of things we've been reading. So read through it. We're going to finish discussing The Misanthrope on Friday, and then we're going to, to talk about uh, The Empty Space as well. Um, what else can I tell you? So those are the, the big things. Uh, and I think that is it in terms of housekeeping, and we'll start talking about the next project, um, either Friday or Monday. Um, good. So any, any questions about anything to start? Okay. Sorry. Just had a little, had a little bit of a, a computer problem and I just wanted to fix that. All right. Good, good, good. Um, anyway, so let's get into Moliere and I want to start with general question. Um, how many people have actually read this before or have some kind of familiarity with it? Okay, so no one has read this play before? Okay, good. All right. So that's that that is interesting. I I'm surprised. I don't think anybody in the last class has, has read it before either. I mean, it's often anthologized. Has anybody read uh, another Moliere? Um The Imaginary Invalid or Tartuffe or anything like that? Or is this everyone's first experience with this type of play? Okay, good. So um, what are general impressions then? What do people think of this? Um, obviously no wrong answers here, just what were, how did you like it? glad it's it's very different from Shakespeare <laughs> certainly um, the the humor is maybe a little more refined uh, but the the verse is more direct um, yeah certainly and and also as we, we discussed on Monday's class or yeah Monday's class <laughs> the days of, in COVID times the days of the week are, are relative uh, but on Monday's class, the, the verse is much more structured. It's split right in the middle. And 
Well, occasionally you do get a 13th syllable on the end of these lines. They're typically 12, 12 syllables with rhymes, right? Discussed, sir, connected. The, 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 the A-A-B-B-C-C-D-D rhymes. Um, and so it, it kind of um, gets plain speaking back into, back into the verse. Well, with Shakespeare, there's, uh, there's a lot more layers and a lot more complexity. Okay, great. So let's, let's start with the general plot um, and talk about who these characters are. So what is the, the conflict in the play? What is the main character? What does he want and why can't he get it? Great, yeah, and that is Cleomon is the the woman you're speaking about, and Alceste is the the main male character. Good. What is his? He also has a problem more broadly with the people around him. Yes, he wants to romance um, Cleomon. Uh, however, he has a peculiar characteristic that makes that more difficult for him than possibly for other people. What is that peculiar characteristic? Exactly. Yeah, he, he is uh, critical of French society. He's critical of society, right? He doesn't, he doesn't uh, think that when people collect together, they do anything particularly worthwhile and it certainly doesn't help um and it doesn't help because how does Clément feel about french society Exactly. That's a great point. She's the lover of all men, because um, there's... I'm trying to count here how many characters are actually trying to woo her. Uh, I, I think only three? So, okay. I, I actually... I, I thought initially it was more, but I think it's only three characters. Uh, no, I'm sorry, four. There are four characters who are trying to woo her. Um, so yeah, she is the lover of all men. I think there's only one male character who isn't uh, attempting to... to get into bed with her um and he hates everyone with possibly the exception of philante his his best friend um so good so there is that that dichotomy and of course misanthrope uh, a misanthrope is somebody who hates all people right and you know they, they despise all all people so they are um perfectly unmatched <laughs> so to speak and what ends up happening in the play? How does this conflict resolve? Yeah, he... 
Well, he says, I'll forgive you if you do what? His con- he has a condition, which... Exactly, yeah. The idea is, you know, if Oath overthrow society and go, like, let's go wander in the woods or some crap like that, which she uh, absolutely rejects. And so he goes off, and then um, uh, Philon and his now love interest, um, uh, Ilian, is, they, they go off to find to, to find um, Alceste and kind of bring him back into the world. Okay, so and go through some of the themes. I think we're trying to do maybe the first three acts or so. Um, and you could see the, the unities of the, the Academy and the different things the Academy stressed present here, right? There's, there's five acts. There's unity of place. The whole thing takes place in uh, Cleomon's house in 24 hours. There's really a single action, you know, um, getting these two people. And there's, there's no kind of violence. And there's a lot of uh, proper decorum on stage, including a proper respect for the court. So you know, this is this is very much um, in line with the academy, uh, but anyway, what I want to do is go through each of these characters just so we know who they are. Because my guess is um, they some of them might blend together, and it doesn't help that no one knows how to pronounce their names. So you know, let's let's try and do this. So we already talked about Alcest. Alcest is our main character. His big thing is he wants Cleomar, and we've talked about Cleomar. Uh, she is the kind of, you know, loved by all men, as Kimberly, as you said, very eloquently. Um, so who is uh, Philant? P-H-I-L-I-N-T-E. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Elient. Mm-hmm. It's her cousin, yeah. Cousin and friend. But yeah, it's it's a uh, Elient and Elient, yeah. So he and they eventually they don't get married, but they agree that they're going to become a couple by the end of it. Okay, good. And so, uh, Philant acts as a, a foil to Alceste. And so what is what is a foil? How does a foil operate in a piece of literature or play? Good. Exactly. Yeah, it's it is a a character that is typically distinct from our main character or from another character in order to bring out the 
to bring out that initial character, to bring out the, the characteristics of that initial character. So Villant is um, very much indebted to the court, um, and this reveals how misanthropic Alceste actually is. But if, if we're not living in that society, and, you know, newsflash, we are not, uh, it, it might be hard to see how Alceste appears to the people in that world. And Philant, by being the voice piece of social interaction, um, we're able to judge Alceste more prop, you know, uh, more clearly. So, great. Thank you. And so then we also have um, uh, Orant, Orant, the O-R-O-N-T-E. Um, wh who is he and what does he do in this play? Good, exactly. Yeah, so he he's um, he's kind of a member of the court, and he does courtly things. Part of doing courtly things is writing sonnets and circulating them. So I, I don't think he is... I don't think we should think of his poetry as a potential profession or anything like that. But the actual... The writing of, of fancy verse and circulating them around your, your noble friends, that's sort of a courtly activity. Um, and it's... Yeah, it, it's also the case in england too they, they would do that right so if you're reading kind of great sonnets of of the renaissance typically these are written by rich guys showing off um and and on is is going to be kind of part of that um of course that gets him in trouble with alceste and it gets alceste in a lot of trouble but good yeah that's exactly it and he's also as you mentioned um another one of these these doting people um Ilian, we, we already talked about her. Um, how about Arsinoe? This is uh, the the woman who comes in, I believe, in Act 3. A-R-S-I-N-O-E. A little accent on the E. <laughs> mm -hmm. good yeah okay excellent yeah and, and what makes her so not pleasant Good, yeah. She's, it's that she's also kind of a bit of a prude. You know, there's this way of acting that Salomon is, is not engaging. Um, excellent. If I've been saying Clermont, that, that's my bad. It's Salomon. It's, it's a soft C. Um, I, 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 I've studied French some for a period of time. I'm not great at it, so I, I will also screw up the French names now and then. But good, yeah. Arsenoe is uh, an older woman. She... 
wants the the kind of male attention um, that uh, Selima uh, wants, but she, you know, she isn't quite as appealing. Okay, and then we have the Marquesas, Acast, and uh, Clinton. Clinton is is not is spelled C L I T A N D R E. Um, and and who are these people? They have a very brief showing in the play. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, exactly. She they're they're part of the the orbit. Good. And then then the rest of the people are you know Basque and Dubois are are just our servants. Okay, great. So let's get into into some of these these themes now that we've, we've kind of cleared up who the characters are. Um, so on page five thirty, and we see this this conversation between Alceste and uh, Philon. And um, it's really about the, the, the kind of the court life pros and cons. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of see, uh, I'm going to take a look at Al- Alceste's speech here, um, starting on line 61, the very close of the speech, the end of it, where he says, I spurn the easy tribute of a heart which will not set the worthy man apart. I choose, sir, to be chosen, and in fine, the friend of mankind is no friend of mine. Okay. Um, and then backing up, so I'm going to saying these lines out of order, ho- hopefully for a good reason, but we'll see. Uh, so going back up to line 45. These lavishers of meaningless embraces, these utterers of obliging commonplaces, who court and flatter everyone on earth, and praise the fool no less than the man of worth. Okay, so we have um, two ways to describe the flattery that's going on here. Um, so in the first case, line 61 through 64, uh, what he's saying is uh, that he wants to be chosen because he is so... And refined, right? Um, that he's he's worthy. He uses the word worthy there, and then moving back up, um, his criticism of the court is that it's a bunch of flatterers, um, and that they're willing to praise the foolish man, praise the fool, as much as they are willing to praise the man of worth. So this is. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rachel. And, and good. So the, the fool is the, in Shakespeare, the fool is the person who can tell the truth also. 
right? The fool is is the smart person and also the truth teller. Um, and so who's the truth teller in this play? Yeah, so he's, you know, from from a Shakespearean perspective anyway, he's kind of taking on the role of the fool. Um, however, uh, so one reason we don't see fools is you in, you know, kind of proper French theater, you're not supposed to mi mix high and low, right? All of these people are of a class. You can have their servants come on like we see, but you, you can't actually have like, like Dubois can't have a long conversation, right? That's that's just not allowed. That's That doesn't follow the rules of decorum. Um, so there's, there's these standards outside of Shakespeare that kind of make this play different. Um, however, in Shakespeare, just to go back or speak off of Rachel's analysis, uh, the the fool is also the person who is able to um, maybe not necessarily break out of the hierarchy, but the fool is the person who doesn't have to respect the the politeness tropes that kind of regal hierarchy implies. Um, and Alceste also, you know, doesn't want to, or he even when when we hear about him going to court, he refuses to respect those those hierarchies um and so it seems like that the uh that Alceste is is sort of the inheritor of of the tradition of the fool um that may be speaking too too liberally um Alceste is similar to the fool I would say but what what's a big difference between let's say him and and Touchstone or him and the fool of Lear What do you mean by the status quo? No, no, no. I'm talking about Alceste. <laughs> oh, okay. Good. I was, I was like, oh, I don't think Alceste is. So I think a, a big difference would be um, that the the fool and the and Touchstone. Well, Touchstone is kind of joyous, and he is in the woods because he's he's respecting the wishes of really the 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 daughter of the right duke um the fool sticks with lear because lear is the the rightful king um and he also seems to actually sincerely love lear but lear is also the rightful king the person who has been mistreated alcest on the other hand would, would alcest stay with lear I mean, probably not, right? Because, you know, yeah, yeah, he'd probably call Lear out on his crap, and I think the and and the society of Lear would be too much. Even when it's down to Lear, Fool, and Kent, it would be like, well, these people are a bunch of idiots. You're a bunch of idiots. I'm I'm gonna go away and off and do my own thing. Um, and it also seems like Alceste is never materially deprived. So that that <laughs> that might factor into it. Um, but with Alceste, there is really not a, a an appreciation. 
for the hierarchies that polite society necessitates. Um, but when we see Philon in response, um, line 65, he says here, but in polite society, custom decrees that we show certain outward courtesies. Um, and then Alceste responds, uh, no, we should condemn with all our force such false and artificial intercourse, etc., etc." Then Philon responds in line 73, in certain cases, it would be uncouth and most absurd to speak the naked truth. With all respect for your exalted notions, it's often best to veil one's true emotions. Wouldn't the social fabric come undone if we were wholly frank with everyone? Suppose you met with someone you couldn't bear. Would you inform him of it then and there? And Alceste says, yes. Then you tell old Emile it's pathetic, the way she daubs her features with cosmetics and plays the gay coquette at 64? I would. And then it, it goes on and on. Um... So there's two two setups here. There is let's always be honest, and then this Philon who says, "We have social customs and rules, not for arbitrary reasons, but for for good ones, right?" And so, what are those good reasons that that Philon appears to be defending? Yeah, we, we we spare their feelings, and if we didn't spare their feelings, what would be the consequence of that? Well, I mean, Philon's argument here is that, um, in line 77, that the social fabric would come undone. Yeah. Exactly. Right. If you were to if you were to be brutally honest with everyone, everyone, you know, the, the social world falls apart, that these kind of pleasant lies or the, this kind of fawning or flattery, um, it may be a little ridiculous, but it's not completely without purpose. And so we have this kind of idea in Moliere of ridiculous people but there's still uh, there's still ridiculous, not always um, not always without reason. And I think one kind of example of where sort of ridiculous behaviors actually maintain a sort of stability. Um, I'm going to jump just jump to Act Three because I, I think this might help. Is the the scene with. Uh, the scene where you see the two courtiers, Akes and um, Cilantro. Is that how you say his name? Uh, Cleon, excuse me. Cleon and Alcast in Act 3, Scene 1. And you see these two kind of courtiers enter, enter the space. Um, and what is their argument about? I know we're jumping ahead, so, so you could take a minute to, to take a look at that.
Well, this is an argument between the two, the two men. Yeah, the two Marquesas. Selimant, Selimant. Exactly. And um, and what conclusion do they come to? Exactly. Yeah, they make a treaty. Sélimant. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Let's sell, sell like your body is made of cells. Sélimant. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So there is, uh, I read this as uh, a sort of foil to the um, the situation that arises between Alceste and Oran in the first act, um, which is you have a person who is completely unable or unwilling or both to deal with society, which really just means other people. Um, and when it when it becomes a problem when two people want the same thing, when they both can have it, we see in Act Three the these two. Excuse me. Um, these two courtiers are able to deal with it. They're part of the court. They're able to sort of make an agreement. But when we look at because it's a weird scene. Three one's a weird scene. Like if you take it out of the play, uh, you know I, I don't think you really need much of it. Um, but if we go to Act One, Scene Two and take a look at how two other people sort of compete. And that's um, Oran and Alceste. And they, uh, this is Act 1, Scene 2, page 532 through 534. And what happens in this scene? They're not really talking about uh, Selimah. They're talking about something else. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
they they ruin their reputation because they're making these bad sonnets. Um, and uh, how does o uh, noting the rest of the play? How does Oran take this uh, this criticism? Mm -hmm. He wants revenge for it, and he he actually takes action, right? He insta he, he sues him, <laughs> he sues him for insulting him, which apparently was a thing. Um, you know, if you insult somebody's poetry, I, I suppose it's something like liable. Um, you you know, you say something insulting about someone that you could take them to the court. Now, with with us, it's obviously it has to be something untrue that you're making a claim about. Um, but that seems to be the case here. Uh, and so the uh, so Alceste fails to play by the rules, which is when a courtier shows his poetry, you say, oh, that's fine. And if it's a piece of crap, you just kind of laugh at him behind his back. Um, but what are the what is the consequence of of Alceste not listening to not listening to societal rules at all or not, you know, being a little bit flexible in terms of how to behave. Yeah, well, he goes to court. He um, he acts completely defiantly in court, as we learn, and then yeah, he's going to be arrested for his kind of behavior in court. Um, and so, it's his. You might say this is unfair or something like that, but it's it's kind of the rules of the game that everybody knows, and Alceste is, you know, com completely refusing to play by them. And so the consequence isn't a sort of uh, uh, an armistice, as is the case with the two Marquesses, the, the Marquesses. Um, in this case, it's it's kind of a a building conflict that results with Alceste kind of being pushed out or being harmed. Okay, so I, I think for me, those different relationships act as a foil. And kind of reading this play is reading these different. Um, these different foils or these different dyads between the social and how to act in the social, which includes mocking. You know, you don't have to embrace, you know, you don't have to like, like everything. You're, you're perfectly willing to mock it. And then the Alceste means of doing everything, which is utter and complete honesty at all times, which is also kind of ridiculous. It also does not function particularly well. Okay. Um, so jump to um let's go to 531 i know we're going slow but we you know there's not uh it's not a tremendously long play and we have another class so that's fine and i want to take a look at um uh Philan's speech there it starts on 145 through 166 and then alceste's uh response to that um I'm just going to read a few selections and then we could talk about that. 
Come, let's forget the... This is uh, Philon speaking. Come, let's forget the follies of the times and pardon mankind for its petty crimes. Let's have an end of rantings and of railings and show some leniency towards human failings. And jumps down. Um, this is line 156. Wise men accept their times without objection. And there's no great folly, if you ask me, than trying to reform society. Like you, I see each day a hundred and one unhandsome deeds that might be better done. But still, for all the faults that meet my view, I'm never known to storm and rave like you. I'll take men as they are, or let them be, and teach my soul to bear their frailty. And whether in court or town, whatever the scene, my phlegm's as philosophic as your spleen. So what, what, somebody kind of translate those lines for me. What is the, what is the idea behind them? Yeah, it, it's a, a sort of message of tolerance, right? Um, you know, pe people are people. People fail. They're weak. You know, show some so show some leniency towards that, right? It's it's really is this kind of message of tolerance. Um, and what doesn't he like? What is uh, what is Philant really opposed to? What doesn't just work? Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. Going around ranting and raving, uh, reforming. Right? There's this kind of, this this idea of the, the reformation of reforming people, kind of moral reform. Um, that doesn't work. It doesn't work, you know. Uh, there's no great folly. There's no greater folly, if you ask me, than trying to reform society. Um, you know, I'll just take people as they are, and be better if you need to be better. That that's kind of the idea. So you know, uh, and we see this echo later in the play, um, and I think one example of this later on is when. Um, when we see uh, uh, Selimah and the the older woman, um, let's see if I could find that scene. I think it's scene. It's Act Three, Scene Five, and so this is when she meets Arsinoe, um, and Arsinoe and her have a conversation. And um, what is what is Arsinoe trying to? communicate to Selima. This is a page, it starts on page 539. What's well, a she? Uh, our, our, our Sinue is the older woman, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... Um, yeah. Yep. It, it, she says here on uh, 540, this is our sin away. Um, not this line 29. Not that I... Th think you've been unchaste no no the saints preserved me from a thought so low but mere good conscience never did suffice one must avoid the outward show of vice madame you're too intelligent i'm sure to think my motives anything but pure in offering you this counsel which i do out of a zealous interest in you so this idea of um you have to show that you're virtuous and uh, and all that um and what is uh, Selimon's response to to this <laughs> yeah yep exactly this is you know uh this is what people have been saying about you and also um you know i, I like the the end of this one little exchange this is the lines 115 through 124 and so this is i think 122 um excuse me 121 you dearly love to have them make to you how can i help it what would you have me do if you want lovers please feel free to take as many as you can from me so it's it's a it's a great little fuck you moment right there um so I think it's pretty clearly established that Arsinoe is not um, is not particularly interested in moral chastity or the demonstration of such, but in uh, you know in getting a lover and she's exhibiting jealousy. Um, I think this acts in concert with you know with that earlier scene with. Um, uh, Philon kind of explaining to um, explaining to his friend about, you know, kind of being tolerant and accepting human foibles. I think this this idea of tolerance or acceptance also extends to um, to Selima. I, I don't know that Selima's behavior, which is, you know, she she's interested in a lot of people and she's perfectly willing to insult some of her lovers behind their back to other potential lovers. Um, I think that by the time we learn about that behavior in, in Act 5, we've gotten a lot of messages about tolerating, tolerating human foibles and about avoiding the kind of moralizing that, um, you know, that, that Alceste and Arsinoe are are both engaged in. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think of those characters, those scenes, and these kind of themes of um, these themes of kind of tolerance or acceptance? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of taken 
Yeah, that it's that's a good point. It's that um, our, our Sinoe is. I, I think the play really despises her. You know, yeah. I, Moliere seems to hate moralizers, but it's a really good point you make, Rachel. That you know, even um, even these kind of these prudish people who go around scolding other people, even they, if they're going to be part of this world have to sort of dress it up a little bit you ha- you can say uh, you know oh i think you're a big slut da 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 you have to say um you know my my motives are pure and uh, not that i think you've been unchaste no no you know th- there has to still be this this uh this kind of decoration um however also i think we like or, or i don't know my response to arsinoe is she's my least favorite character um, because she is she is hypocritical right I mean she is interested in you know and not really in chastity and going around and, and, and scolding people she's interested in Alceste she wants you know she wants him and she knows he wants uh, Selimon so the the hypocrisy is um, the hypocrisy is kind of called out in in this scene and then in the scenes following through through scene seven that this woman is um you know this woman is this woman kind of sucks basically um and yet she seems to be somewhat engaged in the same maybe framework or behavior that Alceste is but, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I think the difference, though, is that Alceste is... His honesty is at least admirable. While her hypocrisy is, is really kind of damning. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, she's as, Selimar doesn't kind of tell, she also tells her, you know, she says insulting things about her other lovers to her other lovers, right? I mean, she's not, um, she's not exactly explaining her feelings to everyone, uh, but she is, um, you know, she is kind of playing by these rules, and it's also, she should feel free. I think the play considers that she should feel free to pursue whatever she can. 
I mean, she's working within the, the, the social structures. She's working within the rules and she should have the field freedom to, you know, kind of pursue what, what she wants to pursue. And, you know, the other characters are really able to accept this. Um, and uh, Arsinoe doesn't because, you know, it gets in the way of her wooing Alceste. And Alceste doesn't because he really, you know, can't accept anything of, of anything that's particularly social. Right. In the end, he's willing to forgive her. But what is his condition? What does he say that she has to do? Yep. Yeah. Leave society and go be a hermit with him. Um, and she is not going to do that. And I, I don't think anybody in the audience would really blame her for <laughs> for deciding to um, stay behind, let's say. And of course, uh, uh, Philant decides he's going to go off into the woods and, and bring Alceste back. You get the impression that um, that Alceste is, to a certain degree, maybe performing misanthropy. That this is a, a bit more of a game for him as well. But we will pick this up again on Friday. Any other comments before we go? Okay, good. And actually, we'll have a class end on time. So very good. Thanks, everyone. And I will I'll talk to you on Friday.